Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. It's my great pleasure to introduce Erin Byrne again tonight uh, and her panel. Erin has been here several times uh, now, uh, bringing us all around the world. And Erin is the author of Wings, Gift of Art, Life, and Travel in France. She's the editor of the book we're here to speak about tonight, Vignettes and Postcards from Paris. She's also did Vignettes and Postcards from Morocco, which we did here, and uh, the writer of the Storykeeper film. Erin's work has won Grand Prize Solos Awards for Travel Story of the Year, the Forward Indies Book of the Year, an Acolyte Award for Film, and the Pinnacle Achievement Award. She's taught writing at Shakespeare and Company Bookstore in Paris, at uh, Book Passage Bookstore, and on deep travel trips, and is host of the Lit Wings event series at Book Passage in, in Paris, which features writers, photographers, and filmmakers. Erin is collaborating curator of travel writing and photography for the Creative Process Exhibition, which was launched at the Sorbonne and travels to the world's leading universities. Her screenplay, Siesta, is in pre-production in Spain, and she's working on a novel set in the Paris Ritz during the occupation called Illuminations. And she will introduce the other uh, speakers, part of her panel tonight. But let's start with Erin. Thanks a lot, Erin. Thank you, George. Thank you for coming. Uh, how many of you have been to Paris? <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> you are well-traveled, and you are curious. And tonight we will venture in the pages of Vignettes and Postcards from Paris straight to the literary and creative heart of Paris to feel its pulse. Marcia de Sanctus, Cara Black, who got back Sunday, right? Catherine Carnell, fresh from France, and I, and I came back, I think, a month ago, will share all that Paris has ignited in our own lives. The first edition of this book sprang from a workshop I taught at Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop across from Notre Dame, where Allen Ginsberg, Henry Miller, Anais Nin, James Baldwin, and countless other writers have gathered to share literary secrets. Have you been to the bookshop? Oh, great. I'm going to have, uh, we're going to show the book trailer, and I will apologize in advance for the sound. It's a little shrill. The photos are by Bill Rolf, and the sketches are by uh, Candace Rose Barden and Colette Hanahan. We invite you to discover what Allen Ginsberg called the bewildering beauty of Paris. In this new edition of the highly acclaimed Vignettes and Postcards, Writings from the Evening Writing Workshop at Shakespeare Company Bookstore Paris, Don George, Billy Collins, Marcia DeSanctis, Kimberly Lovato, the spoken word poets of Paris and others wander boulevards, meander through markets, venture across twilight bridges, and tiptoe into grand appartements. We sip champagne, taste history, and savor la bonne vie. Next, Jean-Bernard Pontus, Jane Weston, and the other Paris writers await in the upstairs library at Shakespeare and Company, the ghost of Walt Whitman and Sylvia Plath, the mirror of love, and the timeless mystique of stories. So the book is edited by myself and Anna Pook, who was the longtime instructor at Shakespeare and Company. 
We wanted to put together their writings because we noticed when we worked with writers up in that garret of literary ghosts, magic happens. I'm going to read a little bit from the foreword about the workshop and then about our book launch for the original book. The Room Waits. Voices and footsteps from the bookstore underneath echo in the empty space. Through an open window, the buzz of traffic breezes in past pink geraniums, which linger in their wooden box, savoring the last light of day. Dust motes circle in rhythm. An old table appears to have pushed aside a chest set on its own top to clear space for paper and pen. This is George Whitman's private library at Shakespeare and Company Bookstore. For six decades, he presided at the cash register downstairs, shouted commands across the room at random strangers, invited many to tea or to stay, and swished between bookshelves. But now, in September of 2011, he lies in bed inside his apartment up the stairs as life ebbs from his frail body. George's spirit still infuses the shop, but his is now a wispy presence. The people clomp, stumble, and tiptoe up the stairs. Collectively, they read and write and speak in dozens of languages. They come from all over the world. Brazil, New Zealand, Ireland, Iran, Lebanon, and other places. Their communal consciousness overflows with precise details, harvested impressions, and thriving ideas. On this warm evening, they come from all over Paris, on foot, on bicycle, on metro, on buses, to create something tangible out of the richness of their lives. Vignettes and Postcards was launched May 2012, in an event in the upstairs library. The rooms were packed with people scrunched on chairs without an inch to spare, crammed in the back room against the mirror of love, peering out from around the corner of the piano room, clustered at the top of the stairs and back, and through an open door, crowded on the side stairs in the hallway that led to George's apartment. Tumbleweeds bustled about, welcoming everyone, pouring wine, congratulating the writers, who read with unexpected flair. A Texan accent, a toss of the head, a voice pushing up through tears. Something gave them an extra push. Or someone... George Whitman's physical body was gone, but his ghost leaned against the door jamb, his wiry hair springing out and bouncing as he nodded and clapped. The room had waited a long time for this. So you have to read the book to find out what the mirror of love is, because there's a story about it. And I will tell you, uh, we have another hint about tumbleweeds, but I will tell you the story of what they are at the very end of tonight's event. And uh, there's a story in the book called The Rarest of Editions about George Whitman uh, that I wrote. So these writers from the original workshop have continued to meet, and they've gone on to conjure stories and publish books. One is even a night of arts and letters. Two are here tonight. Uh, Nancy Sapansky is there in the back. Uh, hers, she was a little too shy tonight to read her story, Cinnamon Bread, but I hope you read it. Um, when she read it uh, during our workshop, she brought some cinnamon bread, so the, the scent was wafting about the room. And Patricia Rarig, who also is here fresh from Paris. Uh, Patricia is doing a residency at Word Space Studios uh, Literary Center. And uh, 
I didn't have time. She set this up. Uh, they set it up rather last minute. So I didn't have time to get her on the presentation for tonight. But uh, she and I are doing an event uh, kind of more focused on the original anthology at Word Space Studios. And so there are flyers um, on the table out there. So the original book uh, won 10 international awards. So Kimberly Cameron, who is my literary agent, uh, and she just had started her own publishing company, Reputation Books, they wanted to do a new edition of this book, and they wanted to do a series, like a destination-specific series. So I added 21 new stories and poems to the original one. And so the book is laid out with a new section in front and the original book in the back. And then I also did uh, vignettes and postcards from Morocco. And uh, there's a few of these out there, but we did a really fun event here last year for that. Marcia de Sanctus will pop us tonight into that bewildering beauty of Paris with her story from the book. Her book, which is also out there, A Hundred Places in France Every Woman Should Go, is kind of a sister book to my book, Wings, Gifts of Art, Life and Travel in France. Um, They kind of have some of the same people and moments in history kind of seen through different lights. But our publisher is here tonight, Larry Habiger, is right over here. Um, So I wanted to say hi to him. Marcia de Sanctus is the New York Times bestselling author of A Hundred Places in France Every Woman Should Go. She is a regular contributor to Vogue, Town and Country, BBC Travel, and Travel and Leisure, and has also written for Marie Claire, The New York Times, O the Oprah Magazine, Architectural Digest, and many other publications. She is the recipient of five Lowell Thomas Awards for Excellence in Journalism, Travel Journalism, for her essays from Rwanda, Haiti, Morocco, she also has a story in the Morocco book, France, and Russia. And she has come from the East Coast to be with us tonight. So, uh, Marcia, just thank us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much for being here, and thank you, Erin, for putting together this beautiful anthology and including me. Um, This is a story that I originally published in Town & Country magazine. It was actually for the weddings issue, um, which I guess they do twice a year. Um, And it was about my wedding in Paris and my return to Paris for the 20th anniversary uh, for my 20th anniversary, um, I'm not going to get that far in this reading. This is just an excerpt. 20 years and counting. Since 1784, Le Grand Véfour has occupied the northwest corner of the Jardin du Palais Royal in Paris. The restaurant seems forever married to the words venerable institution because of the roster of French luminaries from Napoleon to Victor Hugo to to Jean-Paul Sartre who have warmed its velvet banquettes over the years. And then there's me. One fall afternoon 20 years ago, I had my wedding dinner there. I first ate at Le Grand Véfour in the summer of 1983, with a sporty count named Nicolas, who squired me around Paris in a Fiat Spider, but whose diminished circumstances became obvious when the bill arrived. (laughs) He was a couple of hundred francs short, but what did I care who paid the check? Champagne was coursing through our veins, and the restaurant's gilded opulence gave us the sensation that we were tucked inside a fancy box of chocolates. Despite its age, Le Grand Véfour had the order and polish of something new and, for me, uncharted. Glass panels lined the dining room, along with portraits of fleshy, bare-breasted goddesses bearing peaches or colored ices, paintings 200 years old, but with hues and sentiments as fresh as that July morning. All around me, the thrill of seduction mingled with the tranquility of permanence. The scent of tarragon wafted up from my lamb chops and Cassis ice cream added another layer of pleasure. The bubbly, his lips on my bare shoulder, a warm summer night, Le Grand Véfour was promise itself and the pure essence of Paris, 
I never forgot it. Eight years later, I was back, living in Paris and working as a journalist, traveling for stories in Eastern Europe and the Middle East. When I got engaged to Mark, an American sculptor, there seemed no question that we would forego, forego the big do stateside and get married in the city we now called home. He had bought my engagement ring, a gorgeous but well-worn platinum diamond and sapphire band, at an upscale pawn shop on the Rue de Turenne for 1,200 francs, or about 200 bucks at the time. Our rented apartment had a fancy address in the Marais, but I'd spent the better part of the previous year steaming off the stained brown wallpaper that covered every inch of the place, substituting the bare light bulbs in the ceiling with fixtures from the market at Clignancourt and hiding the pre-war linoleum under carpets I bought at Souks from Istanbul to Fez. In France, no one cared where we went to college or what our fathers did back home. We worked hard, scraped by, consorted with journalists and artists, and weren't on any regular family dole that propped up our lifestyle. Still, I was the youngest of four unmarried daughters, so my parents were eager to foot the bill for whatever I chose for the 50 people we planned to invite. Family, a few good friends from the States, and mostly those who comprised our life in France. I had already lived in Paris long enough to dress the part, but some other things remained difficult for a young American woman, like finding a wedding venue. I aimed high, but Paris was shutting me out. I inquired it would seem like the city's entire varsity restaurant lineup, L'Orangerie, L'Ambroiserie, Taivon, Maison Blanche, and in each dining room, the gatekeeper shook his head, topped it off with a puckered expression of Gallic scorn, and sent me packing. They seemed to be telling me what I suspected. We had no business getting married in Paris. Yankee, go home. I hadn't dared approach Le Grand Vifour. It was considered a sanctum, impenetrable and holy, despite a perceived decline I'd read about following the recent death of its chef of 36 years. But one day, while getting a haircut at a salon in the Galerie Vivienne, I realized I was a stone's throw from the restaurant. Your hair looks very sad, my coiffeuse Monique told me flatly, <laughs> referring to my brunette locks. Really? I asked. Two hours later, I walked out a blonde. And not a very classy-looking one. <laughs> Maybe it was the hair that made me lose my guile, because something marched me straight over to Le Grand Vifour. I stopped to read the placard in memory of Colette, who had lived upstairs, and who at the end of her life was carried down each day for lunch at her lavish personal canteen. I turned the corner on the Rue de Beaujolais and walked inside, where I was greeted by an imposing woman with a spray of silk ruffles at her neck. Hello, I said. I'm getting married on September 7th at the mairie of the third arrondissement, and afterwards I would like to have my dinner here. To my astonishment, her face lit up. I'm Madame Ruggieri, she said. Congratulations. We would be delighted to host your celebration. <laughs> I, I hope you read the rest of the story. It's absolutely delightful. Thank you. Marcia, your book, A Hundred Places in France, Every Woman Should Go, takes us all over France. Can you tell us about one of your sections about Paris? Sure. I'm going to go, I'm going to stay in the Palais Royal because I think it's a very good example of what I tried to do in this book. By the way, it's not just for women. Um, <laughs> it's a very catchy title, but men like it too. Um, what I wanted to do in this book is is uh, is highlight wherever possible one or two or three of four things. The Palais Royal covers four of them. So one category is something that is just very beautiful. The gardens there are from the 17th century, the mid 1660s. Um, there's something called the Remarkable Gardens of France. There is only one in Paris, and it is this garden. There are 500 linden and chestnut trees. Um, of course, on the other side, there are the Daniel Van Vuren sculptures, which, do you know them? They look like little peppermint patties. They're quite controversial. But it's a very beautiful place, um, and it's, it's kind of a, a very peaceful enclave in the middle of a Paris, an unusual and the second category was, does it have kind of an unusual or, or uh, remarkable or fascinating history? And of course, the Palais Royal does. It was originally built for the Cardinal Richelieu, who was the Minister of State, I think, for Louis XIV. Um, and, uh, and later on, it became really the center of 
the of social life in Paris, it revert it uh, its ownership uh, was given by Louis the Fourteenth to the Orléans family, and there were several famous dukes of Orléans. Um, the most famous one, the one called Philippe Egalité, and he is the one who he wanted to make some money off of off of this property of his, um, and so he built these limestone colonnades, and it, and he was a famous libertine, and he um, he had this you know very festive libertinage going on there, and he let anybody in except police, and very <laughs> and very famously. Um, one of the first kind of salvos in the French Revolution took place uh, right there when Camille Desmoulins apparently jumped on a table and said, you know, the aristocracy must go. Um, the third thing is, does it have a very personal history with me from when I lived in Paris? And of course, I got married there. So um, so there you go. But even before I got married there, I had been there. Um, and my first job in Paris was very close by. So I used to take a picnic lunch there. Um, and it's very conducive to that, to sort of this very meditative place. And the last... Um, the last category, which I included a lot of in this book, is, is there a history of an important French female? And of course, Colette, uh, her shadow um, looms large and, um, and unforgettably around the Palais Royal. She lived there. She grew old and great there. Does everyone know who Colette is? Sure you do. Yeah. She's a writer of 50 novels, hundreds of essays. Um, and she is, I think she was the first, um, the first, uh, um, female president of the, of the, of the Goncourt, um, judging the Goncourt Prize. Um, and she was really kind of, she was strange in that she was the first French woman anyone heard of who had a facelift. She was, she was an author, um, she was an author of the natural world. But she was really a champion of, of women. And I just want to, just in closing, Rita, very pertinent quote that she wrote in an incredible book that she wrote and um, uh, an, an incredible essay she wrote um, called Paris uh, Through My Window. The, here it goes. The worship I offer to my country is a slow-burning fire inside of me. We were spoiled when young by the succulence and the grace of the French earth, warm in its every fold, from having provided shelter to the human race. So she was a real lover of her country, and she lived there during the war and the Nazi occupation. Um, and uh, and again, you can sort of pay homage to her there. So that's that. Thank you so much. In Paris, you may have noticed that they celebrate art for art's sake. And I bring that event home with events that I do, uh, that I host here. And I know that uh, George definitely brings that philosophy to his events that he plans. I have an event called Lit Wings where I bring a writer and a photographer and a filmmaker to share their work um, I do it twice a year at Book Passage and once a year in um, Paris at La Caféotech. And uh, I have a flyer back there for my next event. Um, and I'm going to have Matthew Felix, who's over here, talk about his podcast. And Cara Black is going to be talking about her new book. And Ernest White the second. Um, is going to be the filmmaker, and he is now actually at Cannes. And I host traditional literary salons. Most recently in April, um, I held one on the theme of creativity, uh, sharing about the creative process exhibition. Everyone walked in saying, Notre Dame is on fire. <laughs> and I brought some magazines, which I will... Um, Put on the back table so that you can you can look. The photos in these magazines are just absolutely, you know, devastating and breathtaking. But you know, it was a cauldron, and everyone mourned what might have been. But the next day, people approached from all over Paris and stood in homage and and hope. Things get destroyed, and they rise again through history. The speculation began.
What would the new spire be like? I keep envisioning a glass spire, (laughs) and I wonder what you would design. Notre Dame, Our Lady, is a character in Paris, and Paris is a character in Cara Black's books, the Amy LeDuc series. I invited her to read one of the um, two poems by Billy Collins that I was so thrilled he contributed to the book. Kara Black is the New York Times and USA Today best-selling author of 19 books. 20? 20? No, 19. 19. (laughs) In the private investigator, Emile Le Duc series, which is set in Paris. Kara has received multiple nominations for the Anthony and McCavity Awards, a Washington Post Book World Book of the Year citation, and the Médée de la Vie de Paris, the Paris City Medal, which is a award in recognition of contribution to international culture. With more than 400,000 books in print, that Mille, I'm not, I don't know, my, um, me. Le Duc series has been translated into German, Norwegian, Japanese, French, Spanish, Italian, and Hebrew. Carrot. You okay? <laughs> she just got in. I got in Sunday night, so. <laughs> Jet lag. Um, or we'll say horaire de classe. De classe. It sounds fancier in French. Um, so thank you, Erin. And uh, thank you to George. And thank you to all of you. And hi, Matthew. And um, thank you for coming. So I have the privilege of reading um poem by Billy Collins. And I'll just start right in. I hope I can do justice. It's really beautiful. Paris by Billy Collins. In the apartment someone gave me, the bathroom looked out on a little garden at the bottom of an air shaft with a few barely sprouting trees, ivy clinging to the white cinder blocks, a blue metal table and a rusted chair where, it would seem, no one ever sat. Every morning, a noisy bird would flutter down between the buildings, perch on a thin branch, and yell at me in French bird talk (laughs) while I soaked in the tub under the light from the pale, translucent ceiling. And while he carried on, I would lie there in the warm, soapy water, wondering what shirt I would put on that day, what zinc-covered bar I would stand at with my Herald Tribune and a cup of strong coffee. After a lot of squawking, he would fly back into the sky, leaving only the sound of a metal storefront being raised, or a scooter zipping by outside, which was my signal, to stand up in the cloudy water and reach for a towel. Time to start concentrating on which way I would turn after I had locked the front door. What shop signs I would see. What bridges I would lean on. To watch the broad river undulating like a long playing record under the needle of my eye. So beautiful. Time to stand dripping wet and wonder about the hordes of people I would pass in the street. Mostly people about whose existence I did not believe in but a few whom I would glance at and see my whole life, the way you see the ocean from the shore. One morning after another, I would fan myself dry with a towel and would wonder about what paintings I would stand before that day, looking forward to the usual, the sumptuous reclining nudes, the knife next to a wedge of cheese, a landscape, with the pale blue mountains, the heads and shoulders of gods struggling with one another, a foot crushing a snake, but always hopeful for something new, like yesterday's white turkeys in a field or the single stalk of asparagus on a plate in a small gilded frame. Always ready, now that I am dressed, to cheer the boats of the beautiful the boats of the strange, 
as they float down the river of this momentous day. It's beautiful, no? Mm. Billy Collins. Thank you. Thank you, Carrie. You definitely did that justice. I practiced. (laughs) (laughs) Kara, Paris is a character in your series. Each arrondissement's special quirks and qualities are portrayed. How is this true in your upcoming book, Murder in Bel Air? Thank you for asking. (laughs) (laughs) With a very pretty cover. Pretty cover. It comes out next week. So this is just the galley. So I had to show everyone. That's Lou Cremieux. Uh, near the Guerre de Lyon. Um, so this book, I, I'm very excited about it, and it's the first time I've ever been able to talk about it. <laughs> um, but basically, I just kill people all over Paris, as some of you know. <laughs> so now we have a murder in um, Bel Air, which is the 12th arrondissement. And it's not an arrondissement that many people go to. It's really off the beaten track. There's no huge monuments there. But there is a famous cemetery, a Cimetière de Picpus, a small private cemetery where Lafayette is buried. Uh, you know, the Lafayette who came over and helped us in the revolution. And there is in the, in this small, um, uh, private, uh, cemetery, uh, an American flag on Lafayette's grave. And supposedly one of the generals who came said, enough Lafayette, we are, we are here for you now. We've, we've come back to help you. Uh, but he never really said that it was his ghostwriter, but, but there is an American flag on uh, Lafayette's grave. And it was there during the second world war. The Germans did not take it down because they respected, uh, uh, Lafayette's uh, stature. So, um, but this is a, an arrondissement that, you probably would go through (laughs) going to the Bois de Vincennes. This is not necessarily a destination. It's very residential. And I wanted to bring that out in this story because that's also interesting. It's about the real Paris, if you you will say, um, which is where um, my friend's mother, Madame Gerbeau, lives and where I would go with her to her fromagerie because she always got her cheese there. She has her fish man there. And it's just very... French, you know, with the shops, with the children getting out of school. And um, that's always appealed to me. So I I put my detective, um, whose daughter, um, let's just say the story, in, she's a private detective and she gets involved in, in crime. She's attending, uh, she's giving a talk at a uh, at the Guerre de Lyon upstairs in the wonderful Bistro Le Train Bleu, you know, I mean, gorgeous restaurant, just about to give her great spiel for a, like a PowerPoint. She's the only woman who's been selected and she's just getting up there and the man comes and says, you've gotten a phone call. She goes, what, you know, your daughter has to be picked up at the playgroup. <laughs> and she's like, well, her mother took her and anyway, it ends up that she, of course, has to leave is often women do, puts her, you know, big uh, moment in the spotlight off and goes to pick up her daughter at the playgroup where her American mother, a uh, a, a woman who's on the, uh, the Interpol wanted list and is possibly a CIA rogue operative, has left the daughter, left her baby, Chloe, at 10 months old. So while this happens, um, uh, just as this, they get out of the cafe, the um, they find they see a homeless woman is being uh, taken from on a stretcher out of a convent nearby, and she was the woman who was meeting Amy's mother. So we're we don't know what that means, but probably nothing very good, right? <laughs> so um, so we get pulled into um, it's really a web of international spycraft, post-colonial French, African politics, and neighborhood secrets in this part of the 12th arrondissement. Um, and I think for me, writing about the different arrondissements, it's about what is special about that place? What makes it different? What is the ambience? Where is that village feeling? Because, and I'm, I, I think some of you might agree, I mean, Paris originally was just founded, right, by the Gauls. Caesar came on the Ile de la Cité. And then each, the villages were encompassed by the next king who sucked them in and built a wall, then the next king knocked the wall down, and Paris became what we know today, the 20 arrondissements. Um, Belleville, Montmartre, where I kill people as well, were (laughs) only incorporated in 1860. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is that village feeling, and each village has, like the Bastille, has uh, woodworking trades. and, And so I really want to bring that into the story. But 
It's about the identity of the people who live there. Belleville is a thriving immigrant neighborhood, very different from Passy, the 16th arrondissement, where people, um, you know, noses are like that, and they usually have de la before their name. It's the haute bourgeoisie. So there's a very different way and how it impacts the story. It needs to be organic. What crime happens there that reflects that neighborhood? Did I answer your question? Yeah, thank you. And, it, and it's, it's really wonderful to read uh, Kara's books because it does give you a sense of that view feel, like the feel of each area. So yes, thank you. So You're welcome. Much. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. I am the travel writing and photography curator for the Creative Process Exhibition which is created by Mia Funk and now partners with more than 100 universities and museums like the Louvre. Launched at the Sorbonne and first shown at the Pantheon, this exhibit now travels the world, most recently for the European Conference for the Humanities in Athens, Greece. And this year it's coming to Berkeley. Um, Hopefully I'll be doing an event here around that time about it. Um, I designed these projection elements that fill a wall, uh, and, and they are like some are just photo, fo- photographs, and some are excerpts, tiny excerpts of stories along with photographs. I have an excerpt of a story by Marsha about Rwanda that's just absolutely spellbinding. And at this literary salon, I actually read her story to the group, and 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 then. You know, this was an event that we had when everyone was coming in saying Notre Dame was on fire. So we just decided, okay, we're going to do this event and then we're going to go look at the fire. And we, we were all very upset and flustered. But um, during this literary salon, it is this photo uh, by Catherine Carnow that we, because I have photos by, wonderful photos by Catherine in this exhibit. So, um, it's this photo by Catherine. I think you're going to put that up that we just sat there and looked at and it's so beautiful. So thank you, Catherine, for letting me share this tonight too. Catherine's photos are astounding. She was my very first Litwings photographer. And uh, she has a long history with Paris that we'll be discovering through her story. Catherine Carnell's photographs appear in National Geographic, National Geographic Traveler, Smithsonian, French Geo, and many other international books and magazines. Her retrospective, Vietnam, 25 Years Documenting a Changing Country, opened at the Art Vietnam Gallery in Hanoi in April 2015. Catherine is based in San Francisco and gives private workshops and seminars all over the world for National Geographic, as well as her own signature workshops in Umbria, India, Vietnam, and San Francisco, actually. She has inspired many. Her workshops are in a league of their own, and she is teaching one this fall in Paris. Uh, so, Catherine, I asked her to, to read from her story. <laughs> Thank you. In the book. Thank you so much. I'm just delighted to be here and very honored as I'm not a writer at all. <laughs> yes, you are. I'm a photographer, but, um, but I'm going to read an ex- excerpt uh, from, from the book. So uh, it's just an ex- excerpt from my story in the book. Uh, and my story is called A Very Long Engagement. Paris has been in my life for as long as I can remember. My father lived there in the 50s as a student on the GI Bill, then as a journalist at Time Life. He and my mother met in Algiers, and their romance flowered there and in Paris, where my mother modeled for Chanel and Dior. They got married and moved to Hong Kong, where I was born and grew up. Throughout my life, my parents sprinkled their conversation with French words and phrases. 
My mother often started her sentences with en principe or ended with an exclamatory oh, c'est pas possible. <laughs> By the time I was in college, I was fairly fluent. To know the language and culture of France was to be educated and sophisticated. It was my dream to live in Paris someday. I felt I would be right at home, but my relationship with Paris would not be easy to cultivate. My father arranged a stage for me during the summer at Magnum Photos when I was 15. And the next summer, I returned to Paris, where I knew I could stay for free at Shakespeare and Company. If the owner, George Whitman, found you to be intellectual and educated, he would let you stay upstairs in what was affectionately called the Tumbleweed Hotel. I arrived at Shakespeare's with no money whatsoever. I slept in the front room upstairs with a view of Notre Dame. My mistake was to sleep in the bed rather than on it. And I woke up covered in large red bed bug bites. There's lots of interesting little tidbits in between these paragraphs, so I urge you to read them in the book. Please do. George Whitman was a gruff man who sat downstairs at the desk, smoking cigarettes and staring off into the distance somewhere, occasionally growling about the French authorities coming around to pester him for tax payments or the building's other tenants being bothersome. In the evenings, George was in the kitchen making fruit compote, sometimes putting it in the freezer to make ice cream. Years later, I saw him in a dim lunch counter in New York, eating blueberry pie. I looked at him curiously, and he just nodded, the hint of a smile flickering across his face. In college, I took a semester off and lived in Paris with my boyfriend Jimmy and best friend Brian who were studying semiotics and film theory at the Sorbonne. We found a shabby apartment where the window in Brian's minuscule room looked out into our living room. (laughs) Every morning he would throw open the window and pretending to inhale fresh air, exclaim, what a beautiful day. In the evenings, fellow students would come over smoking cigarettes, drinking wine, and pontificating about film and feminist theory. I fled to Shakespeare and Company frequently and and read the whole of Lawrence Durrell's Alexandria Quartet. Mm. After graduating from college, I moved to Paris and looked for work in photography. I lasted nine months and feeling dejected returned home. Once again, I had not been able to make Paris my home. Over the years, I returned many times to Paris as a photographer and on holiday. In my younger years in Paris, I never felt quite comfortable, despite my fairly fluent French. Maybe it was me, maybe it was the Parisians, but I always felt like a scruffy American girl, even when I wore heels and the requisite scarf tied just right, (laughs) as the French women do it. Paris feels different now that I'm in my 50s. I love that the French actually find women of a certain age to be attractive. (laughs) There isn't that sense of being invisible, as we can sometimes feel elsewhere. And Paris has changed. There is a new generation, impatient and frustrated with French bureaucracy and stuffy tradition, a generation eager to forge ahead with new ideas in cuisine, art, technology, and business. There's cool neighborhoods with coffee bars, restaurants with communal tables and inventive food, waiters who greet you with a smile and think your American accent is adorable. (laughs) I have fallen in love with Paris, maybe for the first time. The French say that a real friendship takes years, and we've weathered so much in four decades. Maybe it's the bittersweet struggles of all those years that has made ours a true love story. (laughs) Thank you. I hope you do. I hope you do read the whole story because I don't think that you can say that you're not a writer anymore. <laughs> so, Catherine, you did this stage, which I'm thinking is an, like an internship at Magnum Photo when you were 15. So, I'm wondering how it affected your work through the years. 
Well, um, I'm going to read my reply because I was a little bit worried I'd be a little bit shaky coming off the plane. Um, so I was actually 16. Uh, working at Magnum Photos as an intern when I was 16 did shape my photography uh, forever for all the rest of these many, many years. I already knew when I took that stage that I wanted to be a professional photographer. I did know that at 15. My job at Magnum Photos was to take down from the floor-to-ceiling shelves the boxes that contained the mostly black-and-white prints that clients came to see to buy. Just keep in mind, this was 1976. There was no internet to search and order photographs online. So all day I looked at the terrific images of the great photographers, such as Ian Barry and Rene Burry, Bruno Barbie, Eve Arnold, and my favorite then and still, Marc Ribou. But the absolute most fascinating part of my job was that in my spare time, and I had a lot because we weren't all so rushed those, those days doing this and that, I would examine the contact sheets of these great photographers, which I discovered sort of on a back shelf, these uh, three-ring ring binders of contact sheets that I came upon. And I'll never forget coming across that famous image by Cartier-Bresson of the family having a picnic au bord de la rivière, homage to my mother, I have to say that in French, on the riverbank. He shot from behind and only four frames. In the first frame, the family's just sitting there. In the second frame, there's a slight movement of some kind. In the third frame, the man is pouring the wine, his face slightly turned to the left. That's the famous shot. In the fourth frame, the man is turned, looking angrily at the photographer, <laughs> Cartier-Bresson. And it was the contact sheets that showed me precisely the process of how these photographs came about, how they came to capture the decisive moment, the split second-by-second second process. And, you know, maybe it was because it was the days of film that they shot sparingly, seeing the potential in a situation and waiting just for that decisive moment, then pouncing. But this style set the tone for my photography forever. And even now, when the decisive moment is not exactly the trend, actually, in photography, I do admit that uh, I shoot a lot more, maybe too much now that I shoot digital, yet the process and the way of seeing is still the same. And so I'd say that working at Magnum at such a young age really uh, was the foundation for the way that I shoot and the way that I see and it was really an amazing experience. Someday I'll write about that in detail. Yeah, next time. <laughs> Thank you. Sure. Thank you so much. I'm a little bit obsessed with Henri Cartier-Bresson. So, Well, I wanted to read a little bit more about the tumbleweeds before we conclude. As... Uh, do you know anyone who, who stayed at Shakespeare and maybe got bed bug fights like <laughs> Catherine did? No? Yes. All right. For 60 years, George has provided a sanctuary for writers and artists whom he calls tumbleweeds. This is the creed of the tumbleweed. Give what you can and take what you need. He invites all to stay in his house provided they read a book a day and put in a few hours at the cash register. These young, bright-eyed literary angels float around, fingering, adjusting, straightening. They lean against the display table and fervently recommend their favorites. They discuss authors with the air of heirs to the throne. George wrote, We wish our guests to enter with the feeling... They have inherited a book-lined apartment on the Seine, which is all the more delightful because they share it with others. So please uh, look on the table out there. We have our books, and we'll be moving directly out there to sign. But we have uh, cards and for events and trips 
There are two trips uh, next year to pair. Well, this one that Catherine is teaching on is called Hidden Compass, and there are cards for it, and it's in the fall. And then there's one through an uh, organization that I used to teach with, and I just I had to kind of give up teaching because I have so many other projects. But um, that group is called Deep Travel, and I know Larry has also taught on deep travel trips. Uh, that one's going to be in the spring. I hope in discovering how this exquisite city has inspired us that you will venture there again in the pages of our books or in reality and perhaps host or attend a salon, celebrate art for art's sake, delve into your creative process and let Paris work its magic on you. Thank you. Thank you. Does anybody have a question that can stump the entire panel? <laughs> Who would ask, like to ask the first question? And I'd like to remind our audiences on radio and online that they're listening to a panel uh, led by Aaron Byrne about Paris. Question for you. You said that, what was it, photographers now no longer are interested in the definitive moment or something like that? Well, there are always backlashes in art. Um, Should we say maybe backlash is not quite the right word, but um, I'm finding that the trend in photography today is not to show or for photographers necessarily to capture the decisive moment, but instead to portray moments of utter stillness. Because I won't go into too, too much detail, but for at least a decade now, um, art photography, fine art photography is sort of met photojournalism and editorial photography. The lines have become blurred and fine art photography, uh, has, has traditionally been more about stillness rather than, than a moment. To the woman in the lovely black and white print dress, whose name has escaped me, congratulations on getting Grand Vifaux to host Thank you. your party. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was a tiny nugget that was missing from your story, and it's been niggling in my mind. Who was the chef who died after a 36-year tenure? <laughs> oh. I, you know, I, sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to make it a I, trick question or a pop it quiz. It is a trick question because I don't remember his name. It was taken over by Guy Martin, who is uh, still right. the chef there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my. I was saying to Aaron, there's always someone who asks a question <laughs> that I don't know the answer to. But thank you for not asking. Do you asking. know the answer? You, no, I don't. Oh. <laughs> that, that would be rude. Uh, <laughs> unless you're a he lawyer. Was there unless you're a lawyer. He was, uh, he was unremarkable, though. That's that yeah. much I know. Yeah, it, would, it really went downhill. But Well, uh, <laughs> forgive me and wave me off. Thank you. No. Congratulations. You stumped I can't believe we did stump it. <laughs> Thank you. This, this was, I just came back from Paris on Saturday. I um, own a, a month in a flat across from the Sorbonne that was put together by some people from San Francisco. Um, I could have lots of questions, but one thing that is, I happen to be there for the one of the jazz festivals that was just on in, in the left bank, and one of the concerts was in Saint-Germain-des-Prés, and I was astounded to see how the renovation is going, um, which is is really totally repainting, redoing it, and, I, and it's not completely finished, because I remembered before how dark and dingy that wonderful old church was. But I don't know if you know more about... Um, Renovation is hardly the right word, but reconstruction of the interiors of some of the churches and, and buildings is going. Um, and I also just wanted to say that I was really pleased to see scaffolding was up at Notre Dame and, and activity was already underway. I think they were taking out some of the glass window to preserve the glass, but it appeared that activity had started to certainly cover the roof and to end take out those parts. But do you know any more about any of the restoration of some of the historic buildings? You know, it's such a good question. And I would imagine that now we, as we all have the front row seat to the restoration and reconstruction of Notre Dame, that they will be highlighting 
those other churches quite a bit more. Uh, they did, they were working on the cathedral when this fire happened. So they thought that perhaps that caused it. But speaking of Henri Cartier-Bresson, he photographed the uh, vertigris statues that were around the spire and uh, they had just removed those. There's a picture in the magazines. They had just removed those for restoration work. So those were saved. But um, it's such a good question. I think that you can spend the year getting your answer by reading up on how they're doing Notre Dame. And Can I just add yeah. something? Yeah. That I had lunch with the man who works in, in the police laboratory. Uh, he's the arson specialist. And he had just because... I was very lucky to have lunch with him, and he was saying, I'm in charge of this investigation, and I was in Notre Dame this morning. He had gone in and showed me pictures on his phone, and he, of course, couldn't talk about the ongoing investigation, but he showed me a cherub's head had just fallen down from the top of the cathedral, and it still was in one piece on the ground. It was incredible that it survived, but he said... um, you know, he was. They were going through and sifting through every bit of rubble, of dust, and of the bits of wood. So it's it's a huge, huge process. They the the bell towers were were about fifteen minutes away from crumbling from mm. the heat. And if you noticed, they were when we were there. We were we were astonished at the way that they were using the water because they were basically the 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 cauldron was, you know, below where the spire was and they were almost watering over the top of it. In fact, um, I'm happy to have the opportunity to say this, but our, our president um, texted the, the, this criticism of how they were (laughs) doing this, but basically they were doing it to, to put water on the bell towers to save them. So and also the um, the stained glass, they were so happy to save that. So. I guess just one more comment or maybe a question. That, to me, it was also very interesting that the debate that started was very French. I thought between after, after the the very wealthy patrons came forward right away and said we will put in a lot of money to restore Notre Dame, and and then there was this debate about. Well, why is it the wealthy people? What about the government? What, why shouldn't the government do it? You know, shouldn't this be a public thing as opposed to, well, we're delighted. But So it kind of emphasized the the state, private state, um, and wealthy commoner debate that goes yeah. on. It is. Well, the timing happening right in the middle of the Gilets jaunes yes. uh, yeah. protests, it was really seized up as an issue for that. And it was, it was really... Um, but, uh, also, I think um, philanthropy, that kind of philanthropic work, is not as common in France and Europe. So, you know, the things that we have when something happens and all the celebrities have their, you know, you know, concertathons and things raising money, it's not it's not as as commonly seen. So it was very unusual and very much um, uh, sort of uh, unprecedented in France. And it's partially uh, due to the fact that uh, Pinot, who was uh, one of the families, he, he stepped forward first. I did work for that family, actually, as a lawyer wow. in Japan. Huh. Um, and they are very Americanized, British eyes, and so on and so forth. They've spread all over the world. But uh, the, the son who took over for the father, who's now retired, that I worked for, he's married to Selma Hayek, who's yeah. uh, an American, I mean, a Mexican actress. <laughs> so I think that that's part of where the influence in doing it. And I think you notice the very, very French thing came right afterward. There was his... His uh, competitor in in another family uh, yeah. doubled his thing the next yeah. day. So I, the way I thought it. that was because th- these two families have been have been competing with each other. One bought Christie's, the other one bought bought uh, Sotheby's. Then <laughs> one bought uh, Yves Saint Laurent, the other one bought Gucci. It's been going on for about thirty years like that. Uh, so so now they're both going to help Notre Dame. Uh, so we have we have time for maybe one more question. Who would like to ask another question? Oh, I, I before I ask my question. So is your 20th novel going to be about an arson in Notre Dame? How did well, you know? No. <laughs> <laughs> 20 years of writing these books, actually, and I, I would never, never do that. <laughs> All right. My wife and I are planning a trip to Paris. It, she lived there for a bit. It'll be my first trip there. So if 
just a simple question. What would you recommend to be the first thing that I do when I get there other than what she said? <laughs> first, we have to ask her what she said. <laughs> You know, it's interesting because when I work with writers, I ask them, you know, what is the thing that you do when you arrive in a place that makes you feel like you're really in the place? And it's different for everybody. Mm. For me personally, I go somewhere by myself and I look at the sky and then I feel like, oh, I'm in Peru. I'm in Brazil. I mean, so, so actually for you, I would say, look within because you, Marcus, I know you, you've traveled, you know, think about what it is that makes you feel grounded for some people. It's having a conversation. It's like going to a cafe and having a conversation with a local person for another person. It might be listening to music. For another person, it might be going to an outdoor space and just sitting and watching people. So I don't know. What do you others have? I would say um, when you get off the plane, it'll be morning. I would go to, do you know where you're staying? I would go to someplace like La Carrette, which is a restaurant that they have one in the 16th and one in the 3rd, and have scrambled eggs, and the, or, or a pain au chocolat. Actually, they have scrambled eggs at this place, which are sensational, because they're French, they have chives in them. Um, have a pain au chocolat and the best café crème you've ever had. And uh, you have never tasted coffee like that, and just start walking. Walk till your feet can't carry you anymore. Wander. Yeah, the newer. What's the best time of day to walk around? Oh, morning, morning, twenty four, morning, noon, and night. Yeah, you have something. Any, I, I always recommend? recommend the bridges at twilight. Yeah, like you know. Do you have a place to recommend? Okay, I recommend <laughs> one of my favorite cafes is called Rostand R O S T A N G, and it's on the Luxembourg Gardens. Mm. And to sit there outside, I mean, at cafe outside. Um, Again, whatever, uh, cafe creme, whatever, and uh, and then stroll through the Luxembourg Gardens. That would have been my. That's where. I, that's what I also do. I'll like second that, but I'll put in a plug for Tres Bakery, which is at 13 Rue de Medici, which is two doors down from the Red Wheelbarrow Bookstore that Penelope has. That used to be in the Marais. That Penelope has opened. We just had a great lunch there, and uh, Tres 13. I think it's run by a girl from South Carolina and a Parisian or an Australian. So it's a great mix, wonderful food, and you're right looking at the Chardin de Luxembourg. And like everyone else, just get out and walk. And when you're there, you find yourself slowing down a little bit. And they have a saying called faire passer les temps, just passing the time. So that's what. And always look up. I always forget. Oh, you look up and you realize there's so much of the building that you didn't even see. Look up. And then everyone knows you're a tourist, too. (laughs) (laughs) One more question. Thank you very much. I wondered if you could give us your your impressions, your take on on the political situation, the yellow vest, and what's going on in general over there, just from uh, that point of view rather than the, the, the more traditional one that we've been talking about. My friend in Paris says that it's going to stop when the vacation starts, you know, um, <laughs> because that's very French. Uh, Saturday, I didn't notice it at all, but a lot of the metro stop. I mean, as, as you know, you know, like Champs-Élysées or different ones are stopped, so they can't come in and do it. Um, when I was walking by, some people came out. They had just escaped some tear gas near the Gare de Gare Saint-Lazare. So I don't know, but I think it's very organized. I didn't see it myself, but but Saturday, I mean, people were just doing their own, what they do every Saturday. You know, it's so, it's so organized. The, the Saturday after Notre Dame, there were all these rumors that the protests were going to be really violent because Macron was going to make a big announcement on Thursday, which was the day after the fire, and he delayed it, and people were, you know, they were saying, oh, these protests are going to be really violent. And so I was actually watching on my television and they were protesting at Place de République 
and they the police had tear gas and it looked like people were really getting angry and it seemed to me that they were tear gassing them really quickly and so i thought oh they're going to be so mad they then they really pushed them away from the place and so i thought oh they're going to come back later and you know be really angry and People said, no, because they arranged that. Basically, the the protesters say, we're going to be at Plaza de Republic and we're going to do this and that. And the police say, OK, we're going to tear gas you at this time. And and they agree. Like, they shake hands. OK, yeah, we're going to do this. And and that is also very French. So uh, organized. Yeah. OK, great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Aaron. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion. Thanks for coming. And thanks for coming from Paris. Thank you. Thank you.